add that my wife Sharon also had the opportunity to open up the service because I find out sometimes, especially for newer people, if I'm sitting across the table from them enjoying some pie, and they say, Rick, I didn't know you were married. <laughs> There's a problem there. So I'm, I'm grateful uh, that, that she's here and we're a team. And uh, You know, we meet, we meet every single Sunday to praise God, to worship Him, to open up His Word. In fact, if some of you are newer, you perhaps thought the sermon was already over. All right? But it's not. We're going to be able to open up God's Word in a new and a fresh way. And we trust that, that you're encouraged, that you're strengthened, that you're convicted, that you leave here a different person. We've been spending time in the Gospel of John. John spent a whole lot of time with Jesus. And so we have a little bit of a privilege, a little bit of a bird's eye view, a little bit of an opportunity today to be able to open up the word and say, hey, John, tell us a little bit about Jesus. Open our eyes just a little bit. Now, now John wrote this when he was really, really old. He had already traveled a long time on his life's journey. And near his deathbed, one of the things that God, I'm sure, put on his heart said, hey, i, I got to write this down. There's going to be so many people that need to hear about Jesus. And so John had an agenda, and it's actually up on the screen, and it's in John chapter 20, verse 31. And John writes this, And that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life. Now, I've got a little bit of a challenge. Sometimes you folks respond to this, and sometimes you don't, but I'm going to go out on an edge. You know, last week, again, uh, my youngest granddaughter, Leah, was trying to learn this verse. It was actually part of her Awana Sparks verses. And her family um, was trying to encourage her because Leah just wasn't getting it for whatever reason. And so they started to make it into a song. And so all of a sudden I had three of my grandkids sing this song to me. It was a very unique song. I got to let you know. All right. But what I'm going to say is this. Maybe you've got some kids at home. Maybe they're in Awana. Maybe you just want to encourage them and, and help them learn a really good verse. I don't care what version it's in. But if you want to sometime over the next few weeks have your kids, yeah, even if they're 18, all right, learn this verse. And send me a clip, all right? Send me a clip of them. And at this time in my message, what I will do is we're reminded again of this verse over and over again. We're going to have some children say and memorize and repeat this verse for us each and every Sunday so that we're reminded how important this was for John. He wants everybody to know Jesus. He wants everybody to understand how important Jesus was and that by 
his name, which we just got through singing, is that there is life. You know, each week we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus, Messiah or Son of God or Rabbi or Savior. We're finding out really clear that Jesus loves seeking after the lost. He came literally to make sure that everyone on this planet might be reconnected with God. Now, we all don't choose it. I get it. And we hang out with people that certainly don't choose it. But what I want you to remind, or be reminded over and over and over again is that Jesus really cares for people. He really, really cares. First, he talked to Nicodemus, who was this really religious guy. He would make every one of us, well, look rather sinful. He had his act together. But Jesus said, hey, you need a relationship with me. All your religion is really not going to do you much good. Then he met someone on maybe the other end of the spectrum, the Samaritan woman. A woman that, well, honestly was struggling with life. She really struggled with relationships. And she was trying to get all the gusto she possibly could, but... Well, she was falling short. And so Jesus, one afternoon at a well, offered her living water. Oh, she wanted that. She received that living water. Then she went home. And to everyone in her neighborhood, she began to say, Hey, I've met the Messiah, the man who brings life. He's offered me living water. I think you need to hear about him. Some people we know responded just because there was no way this lady was going to be talking about God. But something was different. And then a multitude of people came to hear Jesus. And the scriptures say that they responded to his word. Then last week, we continued as Jesus kept trying to change all the paradigms. Everything that disciples were really used to. He started to teach them about life and ministry in light of all this. He was saying last week in our text that life isn't about food. It's about doing God's will. That the perspective that we have is life is just about us. It's about us making money, about us being successful, about us making sure we eat right, making sure. These are all priorities. But Jesus says, hold it. I, I just want you to, to know. All that stuff is so temporary. What really matters is for you to listen to God and to do. Listen and do. You will be so fulfilled if you do that. And then he put the disciples aside and he says, hey, look at all these barley fields. They're all ready for harvest. There's going to be people coming in and harvesting like crazy. And, but there's a small window like in any other harvest. He says, I want you to know that the world is ready to hear about me. That the harvest fields are ripe. They are ready. And you know what, Jesus, just because he's Jesus, the ironic thing is he uses the Samaritans. The very people that the well, disciples were so very prejudiced against. They would be absolutely the last people that Jesus or, or that the, the disciples want to share good news or gospel with. But they did. 
or Jesus did. And not only did this unlikely woman come to faith, but so many in town. And so the disciples couldn't argue. They heard this. They recognized this. They said, our world is ready to hear good news. And there's great joy for those who plant the seed and for those who harvest. What a promise. Well, today we hang out with Christ, who gives the second sign in the gospel that shouts, I am the Messiah. Now, again, some of you may go, well, I'm, I, I believe that he was a Messiah. I believe he was a Savior. I don't think we need to keep going over this stuff. But if you go back in this context, this is something, again, these Jews were waiting for hundreds of years. When's the Messiah going to come? When's this dude going to come and restore everything? You know, he'll be our king. He'll make everything right. Well, in some ways, that is what the Messiah did. But realistically, it wasn't the Messiah that they were actually expecting. So this is the second sign we're going to look at. I've asked my friend Aaron Thomas to read the scripture for us. John chapter 4, verse 43 through 54. If you could open your Bibles to there, if you can open your flat screens. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43, and we'll read through 54. Aaron. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. As he traveled through Galilee, he, became, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miracle, miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, Go back home, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that was the very time Jesus had told him, Your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Let's pray. Father, again, we just want to learn from your son. In some ways, I think we're jealous that uh, we weren't around 2,000 years ago. To be able to actually see Jesus and hear his words. But God, it's actually even better. We get to hear all these different accounts, these, these four Gospels that point to your Son and help us understand what God looks like. 
I pray today, God, that you would open our eyes, that you would convict us, that you would change us, that this would be something that would ignite us. Father, we pray for all those churches in the area. We ask you, dear God, that you would use them as lighthouses, that they would be life-saving stations, that your word would go out and proclaim, and that people would receive that because it's your word that changes our lives. We thank you, Father, for all things. In your name, amen. Today I'm going to probably do things just a little bit different, but I'd like to walk through our text together. So you're going to need to keep your Bibles open or your flat screens, and we're going to start reading at verse 43 and read a couple verses. But as we heard already, I wanted you to get the big picture. But Jesus at this time leaves a revival and travels to Galilee. Let's look, verse 43. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own town. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything Jesus did there. You see, the Samaritans just responded because they heard the words of Jesus. We find out in just a few verses before that we believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world because we have heard him. It's very significant. I want you to pay attention to this because they didn't believe because of signs. They didn't believe because of miracles. They believed because Jesus said it. Then Jesus headed up to Galilee, where we find the crowds giving Jesus basically a ticker tape parade. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was a hometown hero. Cana wasn't far at all from Nazareth where he had grown up. The Galileans were in Jerusalem. They saw all that Jesus did. Now, we don't have a lot of facts here. We don't know all that Jesus did. We know that Jesus did a whole lot more than what the scriptures has even recorded. So we're not sure if he did some miracles, but one thing we know is that he cleared the temple. One thing we recognize is that he saw that the temple was being abused and that he wanted to set that straight. So that, along with perhaps some other things, these folks knew that Jesus was different. They also were from Cana, and that was the place where at least one miracle had already happened. So they sort of thought, at least the way that I can see, said, hey, maybe Jesus is going to put on a little show for us. Maybe that would be cool. So verse 46 and he traveled through Galilee, and he came to Cana, where he turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. The man was dead desperate. 
So this desperate Capernaum government official comes to Jesus while he's in Cana. Now we have a little bit of a diagram up there just to give you a little bit of geography, but, but between Cana and Capernaum, it's about 20 miles. Remember, there were no planes, trains, or any of those things. Uh, probably took about 20 minutes, uh, excuse me, probably took about two hours to go by chariot, and probably about six hours to walk from Capernaum to Cana. Now, what do we know about this man from the text? Well, one of the things, um, he probably was part of King Herod's royal court. You may not know that by just reading your English versions, but the Greek word is a very specific word, which literally means little king. Some scholars that have kind of dug in have basically said that this person was probably King Herod's household manager. You know what? There's an interesting scripture in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is another count by another uh, follower of Jesus. And he writes in Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. That's kind of normal, right? He took his 12 disciples with him, so he had already chosen them a little bit later on in this whole ministry thing, along with some women who have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. The reason I say it's interesting is Joanna, the wife of Chusa, very unusual that there would be this Gentile follower of Jesus so early in ministry. But actually, I lean toward this being the story right here in John chapter 4. The story of the redemption of Chusa and Joanna. It's quite amazing that this couple saw Jesus, and responded. Now, we do know, because that isn't a fact, but we do know that this man served the king and had influence and authority. He probably was wealthy and privileged. We also know the official was desperate. His son was dying. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever suffered or gone through a son or a daughter dying. I think probably you've known of some. But as a pastor over the years, these are some of the hardest visits anyone can make. Whether it's at a hospital room or whether it's in one of the bedrooms. But the question always comes up, God, what are you doing? What did this little baby do? We have prayed. We have followed you. What kind of a God does this? 
Now, I don't know where this official was. Pretty sure he wasn't a God follower at the moment, but he was desperate. His son was dying, and he was going to do anything he could to perhaps save his son, including walking 20 miles. Here, this miracle man, not even sure Jesus had done any physical healing at this moment. But could this man, Jesus, heal my son? So he seeks out Jesus and begs Jesus to come. You know, most of us have a whole, uh, have a real hard time just asking for help, don't we? Don't we pride ourselves oftentimes to be sufficient, self-sufficient? I can do this. No problem. Even if we honestly need help financially, physically, mentally, whatever it is, you know? I think this man was used to getting his way. I think this man would snap his fingers and boom, 67 servants would come and do whatever he wanted them to do. But nobody could heal his son. And his son had a fever and his son was dying. So he demeans himself. He finds Jesus, his probably last hope, begs and begs, can you come to Capernaum? Can you come? Can you heal my son? Now, give him credit. It is a long trip, as I've mentioned. But he had to leave his wife. If his son was about ready to die, wouldn't you rather be with your son and interact and care for him? His wife, no matter how strong of a woman she was, Maybe rolled her eyes and said, you're going where? You're doing what? You're leaving me here? Are you crazy? What about the rest of the family? What about all the servants? He might be leaving on a goose chase never to see his son again alive. Well, you know, it's so unusual if you read through this scripture. The official went to Jesus, begged Jesus, but the official did not get the response he was hoping for. Look at verse 48. It literally is a rebuke, saying, whoa, this is changing my whole image of Jesus. But, but Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Whoa. Jesus actually rebukes this official. He may be rebuking all of the Galileans because just before he just said, hey, the Samaritans just responded to me because of my word. You guys, you're always looking for signs. You always have to have something like that. But I think actually he was saying, really, dude? The only time you believe is when you want to see a miracle and you come to me. Maybe Jesus, a little bit uh, sarcastic tone. I know I'm your last resort. You just want a miracle. Now really, would you blame the guy though? I mean, if his son is there and there is no hope, wouldn't you? I mean, of course you're going to go to Jesus. But actually, I just think Jesus was testing him. And I lean toward this. 
kind of pushing his envelope. Do you really want me to work? Do you? Well, I don't even think the desperate, desperate man heard the rebuke. I think he was so focused and just so hopeful for Jesus to come and respond. Look at verse 49. The official pleaded. And again, it's in the context. He pleaded, and he pleaded, and he pleaded, and he pleaded. He hung on Jesus' feet. He said, Jesus, Jesus, please, I beg of you, come and heal my son. Lord, please come now before my little boy. My only hope is in you. And then Jesus says these words. They're rather odd. He's not saying, okay, hey, let's, let's start walking to Capernaum. Let's kind of take care of this. Or, hey, I don't have time for this. He, he says this. Go back home. Your son will live. Just quickly. All right, you've begged. You're going back home. Your boy is going to live. Now, if you look at the story, I think the official was at the crossroads here. He could continue his desperate posture, hoping that Jesus would make the trip to Capernaum. Or he could believe Christ's words and go home. The official believed the words of Jesus. The official believed what Jesus said. He chose to believe the words and leaves hopeful, but without any proof. None. None whatsoever. Now we know the man stayed in Cana the night and headed home the following day. We know it was too far to go that time in the afternoon. He had every intention of going home, but traveling the roads at night were just, well, stupid and crazy because of bandits and robbers and all those other things. So he stayed the night. Can you imagine what that official was thinking? Could you? Okay, I'm not making him come. Um, is my boy okay? Don't you love the whole thing called a cell phone or texting? Or any of those things. Because that dude could have got right on, right? If they had it. Honey, talk to Jesus. What's it looking like? Cool, bingo, he's up. He's playing soccer. It is awesome. Oh, feel good about this whole thing. Not then, though. His faith was only in Jesus, his word. And so I got to believe he wrestled through the night. I got to believe he was so anxious. I got to believe that as soon as sunup was there, he started his trip home. Look at verse 51. While the man was on his way, some of the servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun. Do you get that part? When did my son begin to get better? And the servants clarified. This is so cool, all right? Um, yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. 
believed in Jesus. Whoa. I think at that time the story started flying. You won't believe it, Mr. Official, but, but we are all worried. He, he was gasping for breath. His fever was so high. We we're trying to get it down. We didn't know if he'd take another breath. And all of a sudden, he opens his eyes. All of a sudden, he gets out of bed. All of a sudden, he looks around for a soccer ball. What is going on here? One moment we're ready to bury you, and the next moment you're a kid again. Whoa, that cinched it. Jesus is worthy to be trusted. He believed, the scriptures tell us, and his whole household believed. He might have been doing a happy dance for all I know. Do you guys realize why this happened? I met this man, Jesus, and right at that time, he said, your son will live, and look, he's living. He didn't even need to come to Capernaum. This is unbelievable. This is so cool. Let's run home and tell my honey. So they ran or walked or did whatever they could do, and they got home. And can you imagine him running to his wife and embracing and tears of joy? Honey, I don't know. I don't know why this happened. Well, I can tell you. I met the man, Jesus, and he said, his words were, your son will live. Wow. His faith was vindicated. He was able to share what happened. And a whole household believed. Now that may be in your context like everyone that hangs out under your roof. But back then there were servants. And back then there were all kinds of different folks. They might have been small cities in a household. But they had all seen how sick the little boy was. And they were ready for the funeral, not for the party. They believed. They believed. Wow. You see, this is a wonderful story. It starts with a dying boy with absolutely no hope and ends with a whole household of faith. That's the gospel. The gospel is we are all dead. There is no hope for us. We've been separated from God. And Jesus said, I love you. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to spread my arms. I'm going to spill my blood. I'm going to allow my death to take the wrath of God. And if you trust me, if you look to me, if you believe in me and what I did on the cross, you will live. Oh, yeah. That's a goosebump statement. Unbelievable. It happened right there before their eyes. But now the disciples, they're looking. It happened at the well with that crazy lady. It happened all the people that came from Sychar. Wow, your word is powerful, God. And now it happened. It happened right before our eyes. Real faith. 
means resting on the word and the promises of Jesus. If you write in your Bibles, this is what I would put in the margins. Real faith means resting on the word and the promises of Jesus. It's believing God in his word. My question to you this morning, what word or promise do you need to rest in today? What part of God's word is it hard to believe? You know, I know as I open up God's word, God teaches me and God gives me what I need for that day, but also he gives me what I need for people around me. I had a hard phone call this week. A dear friend of mine whose name is Tim has a wife who is really, really sick. And we've known about it and we've been praying. And he was on his way to the hospital up in Madison. And he called me Thursday at 10 o'clock. I looked at my phone, and I knew it wasn't good. I just did. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. But for months and months, he's been sitting at his wife's bedside. He's a pastor. In fact, his church is the church we gave our old speakers to when we got our new sound system. Speakers that would do a whole lot better in his size of congregation. And he called up and he says, Rick, I don't know if I can do this. And for what it seemed like for hours, I just listened to him cry. But I didn't give him any of Rick's great wisdom. I had nothing to offer. But I remember in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, that God said, When you go through rough waters, I will be with you. I said, Tim, I don't know of any rougher waters, but that's God. He will be with you. I don't know what it sounded like to blubbering guys crying over the phone. But I know he needed to hear God's word. What part of God's word do you need to hear? Do you need forgiveness? I wreck my life, my life. it's, It's beyond. No, it's not. Do you need to embrace God's love? I'm just not worthy. I just no, God is love. He doesn't forsake us like, well, other people do. 
is God powerful? Do we need to listen to that? Folks, I think Sundays are amazing when we come together, when we praise, when we open up God's Word. But you have heard consistently from this pulpit for years and years and years. If this is not part of your life, I don't know how you make it. I just don't. Because it is the Word of God that ignites and and gives us what we need for the next day, for the next hour. John uses the word believe, the Greek word pastil. He uses that word over a hundred times in this gospel. He wants you He wants me to trust in the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you might believe and not only be redeemed for eternity, but that you might be able to thrive in your life today in spite of circumstances, situations. And I know there's people sitting right now that have horrific situations. You come to me, as some of you have, and some of other leaders, and we open up God's Word. And we share truth. And we ask you to believe our God. You see, believing in God's Word is critical. Trust is something you will never, ever forget. And I'm sure we could have person after person come up on this platform and tell how God has been faithful over these years. Now as I wrap up today, an amazing story. What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? Well, faith is important. His word is powerful and life-giving. And Jesus doesn't always do what we ask, even if we're desperate. What do we learn from Jesus? You know, I felt I needed to say this. Because I do think there's a whole lot of confusion at times about healing. So what I would like to say is this. Jesus is not saying that if you believe, you will be healed. I never said that once to my friend Tim, and Tim knows that. I hope Deb is healed soon. Completely. But I don't know. I do believe that God does heal, but I also believe that miracles are miracles. Miracles mean it's not normal, all right? It's not. And if you pray a certain way, you touch a certain part, or you pay enough money, doesn't mean that you will be healed. There's no scripture that says that. In fact, there's so many scriptures that, well, even the Apostle Paul cried out for healing. And God said, no, 
instead of heal you, I'm going to give you my grace, and that's going to be enough. I'm going to give you my presence. That's going to be enough. Christ's miracles, at least in this book, remember, were signs. They were signs pointing to everybody around that said, I am Messiah. I have great authority. I am the one to heal, to bring power, to bring strength. What did we learn? Faith develops and is confirmed. No one expects you to have the faith of someone who has walked with God intimately for 50 years. But when I talk to junior high students and senior high students, their faith don't seem, well, that important. But what I try to paint a picture is, just think if you walked with your Savior for 10 years, do you see how things would look? What happened if you walked with your Savior for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years? This would be such an amazing friend. Then all of a sudden you look at death. Well, it's not even death. It's just entry into eternity. And you go, oh, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more hurt, no more disappointment. No more snow. No more Bears-Packers games. And you look at that and you go, whoa, there's something better. There is something better. You know, we can trust in Jesus. We can trust in Jesus. We can trust in God's word. And lastly, and this is so cool, the gospel changes lives. It does. You think differently, you see differently, you spend differently. You are different. You're kinder than you ever thought you could be. You're more loving. You're more forgiving. That's good news. That's why Jesus came. That's why he wanted to proclaim, good news is here. I have come so that you might experience life and enjoy eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for a story of a desperate man. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing the gospel. Thank you for changing our lives. In Jesus' name.